ministry. You can connect with Carrie or another CareNet volunteer at their table in the lobby afterwards, all sorts of volunteer ways to do that. Um, you can give specifically to CareNet, or you can keep giving a mission forward, and we'll keep giving to CareNet for you um, as one of our partners, and just thankful that we get to be a church that's involved in things like that. And, and you might be sitting here today, maybe you're a first-timer or whatever, and you're like, why is, why is stuff like this so important? Like, I've never had a child, or this has never been an issue for me. And this is one of many things that, as a church, we want to have our hands in, we want to be involved, and we want to serve and give towards, because we want to be a church that answers God's call to raise up the next generation of devoted disciples, Right? That's something, that's a phrase that the Lord really put on my heart two years ago as I was praying about the, the direction of our church and felt like the Holy Spirit said, Caleb, the next 20 years of Sound Life Church needs to be pointed towards raising up the next generation of devoted disciples in a culture that may not be friendly to them. In a culture that may not be friendly to them. And one of the, the great glories that God gives his church is often to represent his flourishing kingdom even in cultures that are not leading people toward flourishing. I think that's the season that we're in. I think that's the situation we're in. And we can love our nation, but also acknowledge that there's some things that are not kingdom, that are not biblical, that are not Jesus, and they're not leading people towards life. And so we can do both, and, and one of the ways that we love our nation the best is by living out Jesus' nation the best, right? He called a people to himself, and he has challenged us um, as followers of Jesus. He has charged us with raising up the next generation of devoted disciples, and you see that throughout scripture. You see it from the first chapter in Genesis 1:28. God creates human beings, and what does he tell them to do? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and make it a place where my glory can dwell. Make it a place where my glory can dwell. That is the, the reason that God created human beings. He gave us that purpose that we could, we could work alongside him to make the world a place that is glorious and is full of his presence, like I hope that you experience in worship this morning. All right, that's Genesis chapter one, but then we, we read a couple weeks ago out of the, where, where Moses is interpreting the book of the law, and he says, look, here's the deal. God has given you a culture and a kingdom, and you are responsible to hand it down to the next generation. Deuteronomy six through eight, really focus on that. But then you fast forward to the New Testament, and Jesus comes, and what does he do with his disciples in Matthew 28? Is he gives them this commission. It's really kind of a reworking of Genesis 1, 28 in Matthew 28, and he says, hey, I want you to go through all the world and I want you to make disciples. I want you to make spiritual children. I want you to make apprentices and new followers of me. I want you to go and make disciples of all the nations and all the generations. And as we follow the rest of the New Testament, it's clear that it's part of God's plan for his creation, for his people, for his church to hand off to the next generation what God has handed to us. We have a responsibility in that. And I think that, that if, we're, if, we, if we have any desire to make an impact on this world or to leave a legacy on this world, there's no better way than to hand that to the next generation. It is proven that what we do for the next generation will, exponentially, will have an exponentially greater impact than our own life ever will. Right? Every time that we invest in a child, invest in a young person, they have more years, more time, more kids, more of everything to carry on what we have handed to them. It's one of the great callings of our, of our, of our uh, life and of our people, and it doesn't always come through childbearing. That's one key piece of it. But we're charged with raising up the next generation, and as we talked about over the last couple of weeks, they need to see and hear the story of God's restoration in our lives. 
They need to he- see and hear it, which means that they need to hear some of the bad stuff, maybe not all of it. They need to hear like, like what Carrie just shared with us, like, hey, there was a rough season in my life where some things happened that I wish they wouldn't happen quite that way. Our kids need to hear from us an appropriate version of how messed up we were before Jesus came into our lives. They need to hear some of the things that we struggled with before Jesus saved us because what is the gospel? The gospel is good news, but it's the good news of God reversing the bad news. And if you don't know the bad news, you don't know the value of the good news. So God created us, but our sin broke us, and Jesus came to fix us. And our, our, the next generation needs to see and hear that from us, from our lives. I wouldn't be the person today that, that I am today without a number of different adults in various ways, my parents included, but many other adults, many of them from the church, investing in me things that they had learned along the way, things that were broken in their lives that Jesus had fixed, and they were handing that off to me. And so we have an important question to answer. And, and I want to say we, but I also want to say you have an important question to answer. And I want to challenge you not to take whatever the easiest version of that answer is, like whatever the most vanilla answer is, you don't get to take that. Like Sound Life Church, we are not going to be the easy way out church. I'm sorry. We're not. We're, we're going we're gonna to do the best that we can do, not the least that we can do. And so the, the question is this, how do we raise up the next generation of devoted disciples? How do we do it? And if you don't have kids yet, and your answer is like, well, I don't have kids, this is my problem. And wrong. Because maybe you don't have kids because God wants you to invest in somebody that's not your kids. Right? And some of you, you're like, here's, here's another wrong answer. Well, I have my own kids. There's nothing else that I can or should have to do. And wrong answer. Only in America do we think that our nuclear family is our only family. Every other culture in the world and in history has seen it as bigger than that, that community is family, that we have a responsibility to one another. And that's really the biblical worldview as well. If you think, well, I'm just, I'm working hard now so that I can do something for Jesus later. And I hope that doesn't, how that sounds online, I don't know. I, sorry if I'm tearing up your living room. But here's the deal. We all have a responsibility to be aware of the people around us and particularly the people who have lived less life than us. Which means they might not be the age of your kids or your grandkids, but if you're a little further along in life, you should look for a way to invest in the next generation. Now I should also just caution you, just because you're old doesn't mean you're mature. Our culture seems insistent on proving that. And just because you've been in church a long time doesn't mean you're spiritually mature. You cannot give away what you have not earned for yourself. You can't do it. So there's always this journey of growing as a disciple and handing that off to anyone that God gives us to disciple, to any potential disciple. We have a responsibility, and here's the beauty of that responsibility. The responsibilities that God gives us always result in glory. How do you quantify glory? I don't know. And Jesus doesn't seem too intent on it except to say it's way beyond what you can ask or imagine. It's way beyond anything that you can envision. 
And the story of history shows us that those that invest in the next generation, either positively or negatively, have an exponential impact, right? We want to have an exponentially good impact as disciples of Jesus. But when we ask that question, how do we raise up the next generation of devoted disciples, I want to look at an example in Scripture And the Bible gives us many examples of spiritual family, of spiritual disciple-making, and of of raising up the next generation. But I want to lean into one that has been recorded in kind of unique detail. It's the relationship between Paul, the apostle, and Timothy, the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And we have it in unique detail because Paul wrote some personal letters to Timothy that um, were also for the church, but they were addressed to Timothy, and they are recorded in Scripture for us, which means if they're in Scripture... They're for me and you as well. But they also demonstrate the kind of relationship that Paul developed with Timothy, a relationship that was not biological, that was not by blood. It wasn't even organizational. Timothy didn't get paid to have this relationship with Paul, and Paul wasn't charging Timothy a coaching fee to to have this relationship with Timothy. It was purely generational disciple-making that resulted in exponential impact for both Paul and Timothy, and we are a part of that as we read their letters here today. But one of the things I love about these letters is you, won't, you don't get by the Apostle Paul, and the reason he's called an apostle is because he's one of the 12 people sent by Jesus to instruct his followers in how to be the church. Pretty smart guy, pretty biblical, pretty theological, wrote more of the New Testament than any other single writer. I mean, he's a guy that takes the Bible seriously, because he wrote a chunk of it, right? The Holy Spirit used him to write a chunk of it. But his relationship with Timothy in these letters is more than just theological. It's also very personal. Paul writes with theological integrity, but also with personal emotion. And before we even get into the letter, I I want to just say, Sound Life Church, that is the first principle of disciple-making. That's the first principle. If we're going to be raising up the next generation of devoted disciples, it requires us to invest biblically and personally. I want you to think about those two words. I want to ask you if those two words describe the impact you have on your closest relationships. Is it biblical and is it personal? If it's just biblical, if it just, every time you talk to the people you love, it just sounds like a lecture It sounds like a textbook personified. It sounds like you're just quoting curriculum from some Bible class. If it's just biblical and it's not personal, you run the risk of just establishing religion. And religion, Jesus Jesus even pointed out, religion often just leads to death. It leads to a false sense of relationship with God when you're just following the rules but you don't know God. We don't want to just leave a biblical impact. We want to leave a biblical and personal impact. But can I tell you, in some ways, I think in recent history, the church has erred all towards the personal, and we've just said, well, we'll get to the biblical eventually, maybe. As long as people know that we love them, that's all Jesus has asked of us. And if you've read the New Testament, you know that's not true. That's not all Jesus has asked of us. 
Jesus has said the most loving thing that you can do is teach and demonstrate and show and walk with people through a biblical worldview, a biblical lifestyle, a kingdom lifestyle. We have to be, build relationships and be people that are both biblical and personal. We need to know the Bible, live out the Bible, be biblically informed and lead people towards a biblical perspective of the life that we live in the world around us. But we have to do it in loving, compassionate, honest, authentic, integrous, relationships. And if we get rid of one or the other, we run the risk of leading people to something other than Jesus, and that won't lead them to flourishing. Paul demonstrates in his letters what this looks like, that it's both biblical and personal. And I want to study specifically over these next few weeks, I want to study Paul's second letter in 2 Timothy. You can turn there or pull it up on your Bible app. We're going to start in 2 Timothy chapter 1. But the reason I want to go to 2 Timothy is because 2 Timothy, we think, I mean, historians, scholars believe that 2 Timothy was Paul's last letter that he wrote before he was executed by the Roman government for preaching the gospel. It was, Paul was an old man, he'd been in prison multiple times, he'd been beaten, he'd been tortured, he'd, like everything bad had happened to him, but now Paul knows he's been sentenced, he's not getting out of this one alive. And he chooses to write a letter to Timothy that he knows may be his last words to Timothy. He asks Timothy to try to come visit him before he's executed, but he writes knowing that that may not be possible. Which means that we see Paul investing in Timothy, his final thoughts for Timothy. We know that someone's last words often sum up some of their most important thoughts in life. Some of their most important conclusions about the the life they have lived. And I want to read 2 Timothy as as a letter from an experienced veteran Christian leader to a young Christian person that he wants to be successful after he's gone. And I want us to take the principles from that letter and apply them in our own life, in our own relationships. And I know, I don't think anybody in in here is an apostle. I'm not expecting you to be an apostle. I'm expecting you to be a spiritual mentor. And you may not be uh, gearing up to be a pastor of a church like Timothy was, but God does have a calling and a purpose for your life. And I want us to look at these principles and apply them. So let's read the opening of the letter, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, says this. It says, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I have been sent out to tell others about the life he has promised through faith in Christ Jesus. That's Paul's formal introduction because this letter was going to be read to the whole church. But then verse 2, he gets personal. I am writing to Timothy My dear son, may God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord give you grace and mercy and peace. Timothy, I thank God for you, the God I serve with a clear conscience just as my ancestors did. Night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. I long to see you again, for I remember your tears as we parted. And I will be filled with joy when we are together again. Now Paul writes that knowing that that together may not be until eternity. And Paul had a unique role. He was sent by God. He was an apostle. He was a leader in the church. He was sent by God really in his own role to do what we're all called to do. He said that he was sent to tell others about the life that you can have through faith in Christ Jesus. 
By the way, wherever you work, wherever you're at, you are sent to tell others about the life that they can have through faith in Christ Jesus. It's how we help people find flourishing in Jesus. But Paul had this unique role, but it it was different from the relationship that he had with Timothy. What does he call Timothy? He calls Timothy his dear son. His dear son. Which, by the way, if if you haven't earned that relationship, saying that to an adult man sounds kind of demeaning, right? Like, hey, my dear son. Like sometimes if you haven't earned it and you call, call an adult man buddy, it's like, I'm not your buddy. Don't call me buddy. Bud? What? Now, we've normalized some of those things in our culture, but, but I, 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 even my kids have said, hey, dad, why did that guy call you buddy? I'm like, I don't know. He must like me. Right, but there are certain terms that you, you earn over time, and if you use the term before you've earned it, it feels kind of weird. We've probably all had people be a little too comfortable with us, and you're like, I don't know you yet. Well, that's not the case here. Paul's using a term that he has earned with Timothy. And we'll see more of the context of why and how we know that he's earned that. But he sees Timothy as a dear son. And we know as we read on, you'll see it was likely that Timothy didn't have a dad in his life. Whether that was because of abandonment or death or whatever, we don't know. We hear Timothy's mom and grandmother referenced as the people that have raised him. Paul stepped into Timothy's life as someone who was a spiritual leader and became like a father to Timothy. A role that was earned, not just assumed. But listen to some of the things he says. He says, may God give you, may he bless you with grace and mercy and peace. He says, I thank God for you. He says, night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. He says, Timothy, I remember your tears when we parted. You know, if you've ever left somebody for a long period of time, you know, we have quite a few military families in our church, and I would imagine when a spouse goes on deployment, that's a hard, that's a hard thing. Right, if you've ever parted from family members or your kids have left for college on the other side of the country or, or you've said goodbye to a loved one when they've passed away, often there are tears, there's deep emotion, and you remember those moments. And Paul's saying, Timothy, I remember that moment. I remember how hard it was. And Timothy's tears prove that Paul's words are not just assumed, they were earned. Right? All these things that, that Paul says, this is the heart of a parent. This is the heart of a parent to say, son, I want grace and mercy and peace for you. I want every blessing God has, I want it for you. And I pray for you all the time. I think about you all the time. And and kids in the room, you may not realize it, but your parents often think about you that much. They don't always know what to say about it. But they think about you that much. They pray for you. Sometimes like, Lord, what do I do? But it's all out of love. It's a desire for grace and mercy and peace. And my point is this, that these words in this introduction, these are not the words of an organizational leader. These are not just the words of a a CEO. This is not just a business letter and Paul's saying, hey, Timothy, I've got work for you to do. These are the words of a parent. And this passage, this little passage, these few verses are a great model for a parent's heart towards their children. If, you're, if you feel like you didn't have great models in your life, then read those few verses and say, man, do I, do I lo- is, is, are my children dear to me? Is my son, is my daughter dear to me? 
Do I desire God's grace and mercy and peace? Am I praying for them constantly? Do I take their tears seriously? Right? It's a pretty good model for parenting. But Paul and Timothy were not blood relatives, which means it's also a model for how we should feel about the people we disciple. We don't take it lightly in the church. This is not just a pyramid scheme where it's how much somebody gives back to us that makes the relationship worth it to us. It is a disciple-making, relationship-building family of God. And we cannot effectively make disciples if we don't love people like they're our own family. Which, by the way, means sometimes you're going to get hurt. Right? Sometimes it's going to hurt. But raising up the next generation of devoted disciples requires us to have the heavenly Father's heart for them. Paul wasn't Timothy's dad. And we don't know what kind of dad Paul had. But Paul knew the heavenly Father and he personified the heavenly Father's heart towards Timothy. That's what we have to do as well for those that God has placed in our lives. And a, heavenly fa- or a healthy father wants the right things for their kids. And read these next couple of verses where Paul shifts from just relating to his son and greeting his son to speaking into his life. He says in verse 5, I remember your genuine faith. For you share the faith that first filled your grandmother, Lois. There's a point for some praying grandmas right there. And your mother, Eunice point for praying moms right there. And I know that same faith continues strong in you. This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift that God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. Here's the thing. A spiritual parent always reminds their kids of who they are in Jesus. A spiritual parent is always calling their kids back to who they are in Jesus. When when the kid takes on an identity of the world that you know isn't going to lead them to flourish, you say, that's not who you are. I know who you are. And he's writing to Timothy, who probably, he was in a difficult spot. He was in a difficult church, in a difficult city, in a difficult season of the world. And now the one guy he could rely on, Paul, is probably going to be executed. I would imagine that Timothy's faith is a little bit shaken in this season. And what does Paul say? He says, no, your faith is genuine. Your faith is genuine, and it's rooted. You know where you've come from. Your grandma had that kind of faith. Your mom had that kind of faith, and I see that faith in you. And sometimes when we're at our lowest, we need someone we respect to look at us and say, no, that's not who you are. I know who you are, and you're better than that. You're better than that. There's a real faith in you. And then what does that faith mean? He says, Hey, Timothy, do you know what that faith means? It means that there's a gift in you. There's a calling in you. And don't let that flame be extinguished. Fan that that gift into flame. Use that gift because there's a spirit inside of you that's not a spirit of fear or timidity. Why would he say that to Timothy? Because he knows Timothy. He knows Timothy has a knack to, to go to that place of fear and timidity. He says, that's not who we are, Timothy, That is not who you are. That's not who God made you to be. No, we have a spirit of love and of power and of discipline that is inside of you. And so fan that gift into flame. And can I tell you, leaders, parents, disciple makers, business leaders, mentors, whatever relationship God has given you, you should be calling into into reality what God has placed in the people around you that they often can't see in themselves. 
You have a responsibility to do that. You can do that. And if you don't know what words to use, use the words of Scripture. This is a very commonly quoted verse for that very reason. The bottom line is this, that raising up the next generation of devoted disciples requires us to show them the value and the purpose and the power that are found in God. If you're speaking all these great things into your kids as if they are the source of that, it will fail them. If you're telling your kids, and I think that our culture is kind of famous for this, you're awesome because you're you. You're so special. Whatever dreams come up in your heart, go after them. And if anybody tells you no, they're evil because you should have everything your heart desires. You should do whatever you want to do because that is who you are and be proud of it. Has anyone ever tried living that strategy? I have. Like, I, I grew up in that culture. And do you know what you find out eventually? Oh, I'm not enough. Oh, nobody else thinks I'm that special. Oh, I'm not that talented, and the world doesn't owe me everything that I want all the time. If our uh, positive perspective of ourselves rests on ourselves, it will fail us. We need to raise up a generation of disciples and their perspective of themselves is based on what Jesus says about them. We are special and valuable because God created us in his image. And when we failed to live out that image, God sent Jesus to restore us back to a flourishing life that we can be proud of. We are something amazing, not because we made ourselves amazing, but because God made us amazing and saved us to be amazing. And we have to teach our children that. Don't teach your children a bunch of garbage from our culture that they're just so great that the world should worship them. No, teach them both about their brokenness and about God's victory for them. Teach them that that whenever they face crisis, whether it's caused by themselves or someone else, that's because the world's broken, but that's not the end of the story. Look what Jesus did. And every time they experience success, and they might be tempted to think, look how great I am, point out to them how that is God's blessing in their life and they should thank him for it, right? I see this in my children all the time. I see either the the temptation to feel like because they failed once, they are a failure. And because of Jesus, that doesn't have to be the story. I also see in my children the temptation when they are successful to think it's all about me. And it is my responsibility as a father to humble them appropriately. (laughs) And gently, and gently. Right, to remind them like, hey, did you earn that for yourself? Did you teach yourself that? Did you win that for yourself or was that a product of you working well with a teacher, with a coach, with a parent, with a team? that God gave you. Let's be thankful that God gave you that and enjoy it because God gave it to you, right? We have to to speak into our children the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, and that's what we see Paul do in this next part of the verse. He says in verse eight, because of the, the spirit that is inside of him, verse eight, so never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me. 
for the sake of the good news. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. And now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. So is Timothy supposed to take pride in the spirit of power and love and self-discipline? No, he's supposed to make the most of it so that he's not ashamed, so that he's not afraid to suffer. Why would Paul, why would Paul just darken the mood? Like, Paul, end on the, you, you have a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. That's usually where we end the quotation. Paul's like, no, you have that, so don't be ashamed when you have a lot of reason to be ashamed. Don't be afraid to suffer because suffering's coming your way. And especially if you are going to be serious about the good news of Jesus. Paul is writing to Timothy to prepare him for the worst that the world will throw at him. Do you want, when we disciple others, if we give them the impression that walking with Jesus is just gonna make their life easier, we are liars. We sound more like American culture with a good marketing scheme than we do like the Bible. Because over and over again, the Bible, like a good parent, prepares us like, hey, in this broken world, there's gonna be trouble. But Jesus said, that doesn't mean you need to be afraid because I'm gonna be with you. And Paul says to Timothy, hey, don't be ashamed of who you are. Don't be ashamed of me either. You know, I think of, um, at I may have experienced this as a teenager where sometimes you're like, okay, my parents are good people, but I'm still kind of embarrassed to be around them. I just am embracing that role in my children's lives. <laughs> like, this is a good thing. I, you can be embarrassed about me. I'm okay with it. But in some ways, Timothy, to be associated with Paul, there was room for shame there. Right? I mean, Paul was like, people weren't sure, like, is Paul a good guy or is he a criminal? Like, he's been in jail more times than anybody else in the history of the church. Like, what's the... And Paul's saying, Timothy, don't be ashamed of me. Why? Because of the good news. Don't be ashamed of the good news. And if we're going to raise up the next generation of devoted disciples, it requires us to prepare them to flourish in a broken world through the good news of Jesus. It requires us to help them connect the dots with the bad things that are going to happen in their lives. There's this idea that we want to protect our children's innocence. And while there's some good to that, and while parents should do that, the way that we protect their innocence is not hiding from them that the world is broken. We don't pretend that everything is good and okay in the world. Don't look behind that curtain! Because what does every kid want to do? What's behind that curtain? And kids, I mean, what do adults want to do too, right? We protect our children's innocence by pointing out to them that's wrong with the world. That's broken in the world. But do you know here's the answer to that? And, and by the way, you don't need to like haunt your children. Like not every dinner conversation needs to be like, let's talk about what's wrong with the world today, children. <laughs> Some of us might be prone to do that. That's not what I'm talking about. 
I'm just saying, as they experience difficulty, darkness, and crisis, because they will, especially if they are going to serve Jesus in this world, we need to prepare them for that by being honest about that. And Paul's saying, hey, I'm suffering, you're going to suffer, let's not be ashamed about that. Let's lean in to what God gave us because of the good news of Jesus. And he reminds them, what did Jesus do? Jesus broke death. That's like a pretty good tagline, like, I broke death. That's what Jesus did. He says, you're going to suffer sometimes, but Jesus broke death. That's who you serve. Jesus gave us immortality and eternal life. That's who you serve. Don't be ashamed of that for one minute. And you know, our culture is, has built to a place where it shames us for being Christians. It shames us for faith. It shames us for believing the Bible. It shames us for submitting to Jesus. It shames us for all those things. And praise the Lord. That's the way the world's supposed to work when it's broken until Jesus returns. So let's not be ashamed of the shaming. Let's embrace it through the power of the Spirit, a spirit of love and power and self-discipline. And let's lead our children to say, yeah, this isn't a big deal because our identity is not rooted in what the world thinks about us. Our identity is rooted in a God who created you and when you broke you, he fixed you. And he's never gonna stop fixing you. He's never gonna stop blessing you no matter what the world throws at you. And Paul closes this part of his letter with this final very important principle, starting in verse 11. It says, And God chose me to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of this good news. That's why I'm suffering here in prison. But I'm not ashamed of it, for I know the one in whom I trust, and I'm sure that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until the day of his return. So Timothy, hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching you learned from me. A pattern, there's that word again, shaped by the faith and love that you have in Christ Jesus. Through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, carefully guard the precious truth that has been entrusted to you. What do we see there? We see that Jesus came as a pattern of the life that God has intended all of us to live. And how did Jesus come? Jesus came and he lived a flourishing life, a pattern of godliness, and then he suffered to give that life to all of us. And then he called Paul to follow Paul in the specific ways that Paul was gifted and created to do, and Paul lived a flourishing life in all the ways that God had created him to as a pattern for those that would follow him. And what did Paul have to do? He had to suffer. And now he's saying to Timothy, I have entrusted this pattern to you. You need to be prepared because there will be suffering attached to it, but I want you to now live a life that is flourishing in the way God has created you to and live it as a pattern for those that will follow you even through suffering. What Paul does for Timothy, Jesus did for him, and we have had people do it for us. There are saints that have gone before us. If you don't know any, you can read about them, you can meet them, you could probably meet some in a growth group, you could probably meet some at a summer barbecue, you could probably meet some because there's quite a few great saints here at Sound Life Church. But here's the deal, raising up the next generation of devoted disciples requires a demonstration of devotion in our own lives. It requires a demonstration of devotion. Now, I want to, you to notice devotion. Devotion is one of our four core values as a church. 
Devotion, growth, family, and mission. Those are our four core values. We can talk about that later. But devotion is a very important word. Devotion means all in. Devotion means radical loyalty. Devotion means your whole heart belongs to something. Devotion means that when you make a vow to Jesus, that is your number one thing. Devotion means that your whole life belongs to God. And can I tell you, anything less than that isn't enough. Now, you don't need to be perfect at that to go to heaven. Jesus saved us from our failure to be devoted. But demonstrating devotion in our own lives is the light that shines to the next generation. It's how we call the next generation to ourselves. And Paul demonstrated to Timothy what it was like to be devoted to Jesus even in the face of shame and suffering. He called Timothy to do the same. And sometimes we wonder, why am I going through all this hard stuff? Like, why is my life not as good as so-and-so's? Why, I've, God, I've done everything right. Why am I still suffering? Why is there still struggle and pain and difficulty in these different things? And sometimes from a biblical worldview, we need to understand that sometimes it's us going through hard times that shines a brighter light to those that need to see it. Nobody's really impressed by you going through easy times. Like, nobody's like, oh, I really respect you because of all the vacation pictures you posted. <laughs> like, oh, I really respect your financial management because you have millions of dollars to do. You know, like, we, we, don't, we don't think about, like, ease does not impress us. Like, you don't watch any films that are put out where there's two hours of someone just having an easy life. And there's, like, no famous movies about that. What is every movie about? Someone facing crisis and somehow overcoming the odds, usually through their own personal character and suffering and sacrifice, to somehow come out victorious in the end. That is the story that God built us to live out. He built us to live out the good news in a broken world. He built us for flourishing, but he knew that flourishing would fail because of our sin, and he built us to withstand the storm. Men in this room, he built you to battle for your family. He built you to stand up and be the man you are called to be. He built you to stop making excuses, to stop being lazy, sorry, selfish, pathetic, big babies. And you know what? Before you get insulted, I can only say that, I can only say that because apart from Jesus, I am one of those sorry, selfish, pathetic, big babies. I know the temptation. I understand the pressure and I know the cultural provisions to allow us to do that. But we will not be those kind of men in this church. And our wives, our children, the next generation are depending on us, kicking our own butts to do what God has called us to do. And it can look different in every personality. Timothy, a guy who had no dad in his life, and Paul stepped in and says, Timothy, follow my example. Timothy, I lived, I'm an apostle, you're not, but follow my pattern and apply it in your own life. Can I say, you don't have to be set up for success because the gospel of Jesus sweeps into our failure and picks us up by the spirit of God and makes us a success we could never be on our own. But we have to ask the question, am I demonstrating a devotion to Jesus in my own life? Or am I playing church? Am I allowing just the world to carry me, carry me along? And by the way, ladies, you're not off the hook either. Amen. 
I just can't yell at you because I'm not one of you. <laughs> Jeanette, get up here. No, just kidding. <laughs> Here's the thing. I love you. And every man in this room, I want you to know I have deep respect for you because we are in a culture that is sabotaging godly masculinity at every turn. Every turn. So follow the pattern. Your culture will not give you one. Follow the pattern that has been given to you and live out a pattern worth following for somebody else. No more excuses. Do you know what the cross of Jesus did? It washed away all of our excuses with the blood of Jesus. I'm not good enough, washed away. I'm too broken, washed away. I failed too much, washed away. I walked away from everyone I should have been faithful to, washed away. I did this, washed away. I'm too dumb, I'm too ugly, I'm too, washed away! There's not a spirit of fear anymore. It's a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. What you don't have, the spirit has for you. But we have to ask for it. You wanna know why all these people are clapping and yahooing and stuff? Because once they were lost and now they are found. Once there was a spirit of fear and now there's a spirit of love and power. Don't we want that? Would you stand with me? Worship team, would you come up here? Venues, would you prepare to respond to Jesus in your own way? Father, we just ask that you would come and, and by your spirit, that you would replace every spirit of fear and timidity. Replace it right now with a spirit of love and power and self-discipline. And if you are feeling like you need God in your life, would you just say yes and amen to that? Just say, yes, God, I need that. Begin to pray in your own words, church. Begin to ask God. Stop being ashamed. Stop being ashamed of where you been and who you are and start saying, God, replace the old spirit with your spirit. Give me your spirit, Father. Teach me to live the way you've called me to live. Teach me to be who you've called me to be. Confess to the Father all of those excuses. I never had a good dad, or I never had a good example, or I've never had a good mentor, or the church has failed me, or life has failed me, our world has failed me. Confess all those things, but then say, Father, fill me with your spirit. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is a spirit of sonship and daughtership. It's a spirit of adoption. It's a spirit that teaches us to see God as our Father and to follow his example and to live out his character. Would you just welcome the Holy Spirit in your life, church? Welcome the Spirit into your life.